Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Um, if you'd like to follow along as I read, it's on page 6 of your bulletin. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no, what no eye has seen, what no or ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. These things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. Well, we are continuing in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, this great letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, a large city in ancient Greece, and we're in chapter 2 here, so let's Take a look, but let me pray before we continue. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we have the privilege of sitting before your word, because we believe that your word is what you say it is, uh, the very voice of God. Speak, because we're listening, or at least we ask that you would give us the ability to listen, to hear from you. And we pray that our lives would bear fruit, we pray that you would change us, we don't want to be the same. And so we pray that you would come, come near to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it hasn't been mentioned yet, but it is Super Bowl Sunday, special day, you know, the one time a year that everyone's glad that we worship in the morning, right? <laughs> and I don't know if you'll be among the well over 100 or so million people watching tonight's football game, but... For those of you who plan on watching the game, perhaps with a group of friends or acquaintances, maybe even including some people in our church, I want to make sure that you are prepared. So let me give you a quick heads up on the sort of kinds of people you might encounter at these Super Bowl parties. So first of all, you have to know that there is the diehard fan. We'll call them the diehard fan. This is the fan who tends to blur the line between sports and religion, right? And I'm not just talking about because they're the, I'm not just saying that because they're the most likely people to attend Sunday worship wearing their team's jersey, Joanna Park, I see you. 
With a die, go Eagles. With a die-hard fan, you have to understand is always miserable, right? If their team is winning, they're just waiting for something to go wrong. If their team is losing, they're ready to throw the chips and salsa across the room. Suffice to say, please pray for the die-hard fan. And then there's the I just want a good game fan. This is a person that enjoys watching football. They do, but they have no rooting interest. I don't care who wins, they say happily. I just want it to be a good game, by which they usually mean a close game, preferably with a big dramatic finish. If this describes you, you really need to know there's only one thing you need to know. The diehard fan despises you. There is no room for neutrality on a night like this. That's why he pretends not to hear you every time you ask if there's any pizza left. A third group needs to be mentioned. A third group. This is the I only watch the Super Bowl for the commercials person. Anyone in here in that category? I don't need to tell you how the diehard fan feels about you. All right? There's no mistaking what the real main event is for this person. When a team is going for it on fourth and one, they're the ones talking loudly about their grandma or about last week's State of the Union. Right? But then when one of those very entertaining, yes, $5 million commercials come on, it's shh, right? The I just want a good game, I mean, sorry, the I, wanna, I only want to watch the Super Bowl for the commercials person. But there's a final group. A final group, you're actually in the kitchen reheating the wings for your guests, and you don't mind at all. Or you're the one that's listening to that story about grandma. Or you really are there for the commercials and the good company, because the truth is you have no idea what's going on in the game of football. And that's okay. Maybe you don't care. Or maybe you're from another country where they play the better kind of football that the rest of the world plays. <laughs> but the truth is, there are about four million rules in American football, and there's actually no way to understand the game unless someone explicitly teaches it to you and over many, many years. Right? Isn't this the truth? You cannot figure out American football on your own. Someone needs to explain it to you. And speaking of a need then for explanation, some of you might be wondering what all of this has to do with today's passage. I'm not sure it does, but let me give it a try. If knowing the truth of God and knowing God were something like the Super Bowl, the Corinthian Christians that Paul was writing to in this section of the letter thought that they were in the first group that I mentioned, the diehard fans, the ones who know the game in and out. But Paul tells them, unbeknownst to themselves, that they're really in the last group, clueless, and desperately, desperately needing someone to explain it all to you. You see, the Corinthians were Christians who thought of themselves basically as spiritually elite. 
they actually describe themselves as mature and wise and spiritual. These are catchwords that Paul actually names in this passage in order to correct the use of those words. They saw themselves as the superstars. In fact, they saw themselves as the heroes on the field of the Super Bowl. When Paul tells them, actually, you're the ones on the couch at home watching the game. And this pride that they had about themselves was contributing to the divisions that were just ripping apart the people in the church. And so Paul, out of an interest of bringing them back together in unity and humility, teaches them a little bit about the nature of true spiritual understanding. What does it mean to actually be spiritual? What does it mean to know truth? How do we ascertain and grasp and understand the truth of the cross and of God? Well, let's take a look at the passage. And I'm going to do this in two parts, really. First, just an explanation of the passage. What does it mean? And then an application of the passage. How should we respond to it? First, an explanation. And then we'll take a look at application. Explanation, what's going on here? We're taught in this passage that God's truth cannot be understood through human capabilities alone. God's truth cannot be understood through human capabilities alone. So speaking of the cross of Christ in verse 8, it says, None of the rulers of this age understood it, the cross, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's a reference to the death of Jesus, the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The powers that be who executed him, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, the Jewish king Herod, and even the religious leaders of the day, could not see the true identity of Christ. Could not tell who he really was. They had... We're told no spiritual insight into the meaning of his death. And this was true not only of them, we're told it's true of all of us. Notice how verse 14 speaks more broadly about our natural limitations as human beings. It says, The person without the Spirit does not accept things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. In other words, human reason is a gift from God, but we cannot understand God and his ways through reason alone. Intelligence is a gift from God, but we cannot figure out God by human intelligence and human perception alone. Instead, this passage explains, we need the Spirit of God to understand the truth of God. We already heard verse 14 say this. I'll read it again. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from where? From the Spirit of God, but only considers them foolish and cannot understand them. Why? Why can't they understand them? Because they are discerned only through the Spirit. In other words, we need the Spirit of God to understand the things of God. 
In the second half of verse 10, we're told this. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. None of us are mind readers, right? Sometimes I might expect or even demand my wife to be able to read my mind. But the truth is, if she's to understand my hidden and secret and always complicated feelings and thoughts, I need to tell her, I need to disclose myself to her. How much more is this the case with an infinite and an eternal God? As the theological Carl, uh, the, theologian Karl Barth once said, God is known through God alone. If we are to understand the deep things of God, his thoughts, his nature, his plans, his purposes, his cross in Christ, we need God to explain himself to us. And the good news is that God has done exactly that through the Holy Spirit. Through the ministry of the apostles communicated to us through the scriptures, God's Spirit reveals and explains to us the very heart of God. As the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church in verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words, which we now have printed in ink on the pages in front of you. We declare God's wisdom, we're told in verse 7. And again in verse 9, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. So when we pull it all together, here's the bottom line. Here's the central message of the passage. True spiritual understanding comes from the Holy Spirit. If you want true spiritual understanding, you need the Holy Spirit. What does all of this have to do with us today? Let's look at application. Number one, number one, we need to give greater praise and thanks to the Holy Spirit. Too many Christians, myself included, slide into quietly believing that we came to faith in Christ because we one day figured him out. Too many of us think we understand some of the complexities of the Bible, looking over our shoulder to those who just don't seem to get it. We think we do because we're Smarter. Well, we don't really say it that way, but deep inside it's what we believe we're smarter, or maybe we just tried harder. Why aren't you trying as hard as I tried? 
Meditating on this point in this past week, I had to spend time repenting of my own intellectual pride. Too many of us think we enjoy a special intimacy with God because we just think we're naturally spiritually inclined. Aren't you more like me? Up close and personal with a God like me. And as a result, we have robbed the Holy Spirit of the credit he deserves. Because this passage tells us that everything you understand about God and the gospel is because of the work of the Holy Spirit, not you. If you see the wisdom and the grace and the wonder of the cross, if you sing of it with a full heart, that's because the Holy Spirit showed you that. If you know the, the, the gospel, the truth of the gospel, it's because the Spirit taught you that. It's the Holy Spirit who revealed the things of God to you. It's the Holy Spirit who overcame your natural resistance to God. It's the Holy Spirit who shined the light of Christ into the darkness of your heart. It's the Holy Spirit who gave you the ability to see Jesus and to embrace him and to love him. So it's the Holy Spirit that gets the glory. Give him praise. Secondly, number two, having just spoken to those who have embraced Christ and seen something of the truth of the gospel, I want to turn my attention briefly to others of you. If you actually haven't yet embraced Jesus as your Savior, but you're processing, wonderfully processing the Christian faith, listening and asking questions, and all of that and that journey that you're on, keep in mind, dear friends, that you need the help of the Holy Spirit. In your processing, in your questioning, in your learning. Yes, think about the things that you're learning. Wrestle with the claims of Christ. Read the Bible and read all other kinds of helpful books as you're learning about the person of Jesus. But above all else, hear this passage's exhortation to you. Don't forget to pray. Because as verse 14 told us, we cannot understand the things of God without the Spirit of God. The things that you're looking into are really only discerned, are only unveiled with God's help. So ask God to help you. And if maybe the idea of praying is new to you or maybe even intimidating to you, it might sound simply something like this. God, I, I know I can't figure it out on my own. Tell him honestly. And, and so, God, if you're out there, and if you're God, then, then I guess I'm not going to find you by my own devices. You're going to have to find me, so show up. And then help me to see you and recognize you when you do. Pray for help. And God will use your thinking, of course, and God will use your feelings but you have to know, as we're told in this passage, ultimately, you cannot think your way or feel your way into a relationship with God. 
we need God to help us to discover God. Or rather, we need God to help us to see that the God of grace is one who reaches out and finds and discovers us. So pray for the help of God's Spirit. Number three, thirdly, true spiritual insight comes by God's Spirit alone. We've been repeating that theme again and again, right? True spiritual insight comes by God's Spirit alone. So then, why do we then make assumptions about who's worth listening to based upon their abilities, social status, and outward appearance? See, our passage reminds us that the rulers of this age... The political leaders and the religious leaders, those in power, actually had no clue about what God was doing in the cross of Christ. But isn't it true that we tend to think that if you're more intelligent or if you're more talented or if you have a higher social standing that you kind of have a better shot at understanding the Bible correctly or even knowing God more truly. Not so, says the Word of God. Listen, you, you might have status in the world, and that's not in and of itself a bad thing. You might have status, you might have titles or degrees, But, beloved, do you know that you can be an expert in your field and a total novice as pertains to things of God? That's a humbling thing to grapple with. In God's kingdom, there is no relationship between the two. And I don't say this to shame you. I say it to urge you to take on the posture of an eager learner, no matter your giftedness outwardly or appearance or social standing. And others of you need to know the flip side to this. You need to know that you don't need a bunch of degrees to be spiritually mature. So don't you worry about the fact that you don't got them. You don't need a worldly title to be able to speak truth from the Holy Spirit, to communicate grace, to speak the praises of God, to exhort and encourage and lift up another person in need. You don't need to be outwardly impressive to have a glorious grasp of the gospel. We need to hear from you. Don't think less of yourself than God does. God may use you to lovingly speak truth into somebody's life, even today. Beloved, don't sideline yourself if you have the Spirit of God. And fourthly, this fourth application, and lastly, to close with this one, where do we turn to learn the truth about life in the world, where do we go? What are our sources? Where do we discover truth? 
What do we lean on to give us a sense of understanding about how the world works? The Corinthian Christians were turning to what Paul calls human wisdom in verse 13, in the spirit of the world in the following verse. They were grabbing ideas and values from the surrounding culture indiscriminately, and if we're honest, we're no different. What I mean by that is too many of us, too many professing Christians, simply adopt the values of the world. For example, happiness and tolerance and liberty and love and justice, and then, and then use the Bible simply to validate or confirm their prior commitments. That's too often the order in which we form our belief systems and our values. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about each of those things and affirms many aspects of each of those things, don't get me wrong. But very often when you dig beneath the surface of those labels and our commitment to them, happiness and tolerance and love and liberty and justice and dignity, we find that it's the world's definitions of those ideas that ultimately reign in our hearts and have filled out its meanings, not the truth of the word of God. To use the language of verse 15, we use the ideas of the world to make judgments about the words of Scripture rather than the other way around. Beloved, we are more worldly than we think, more shaped by the world than we are by the Word. Will anyone humbly confess that today? What's your primary source for the truth about human dignity? What's your primary source for the truth about human sexuality? What's your primary source for the truth about money or personal fulfillment or parenting? The great enigma of them all. Parenting, right? This passage tells us that our primary source for these things ought to be the revelation of the Spirit of God which is given to us in Scripture, which doesn't mean, to be clear, that we can't borrow from and make good, wise use of other kinds of sources, good ideas, practical tools, even pieces of ideological systems that are helpful and that comport with the Word of God. But the question is, what's your foundation? Is it the revelation of the Spirit of God given to us in Scripture? Last week, as part of our winter term class on the Bible, I taught a seminar. Some of you were at it. It was called How to Read and Study the Bible. And as I was preparing for that seminar, I became burdened by an observation that more and more these days, the average Christian has just given up on the possibility, even the possibility of interpreting the Bible in a sound, comprehensible, consistent, rationally defensible fashion. And so when we're confronted with, you know, those hard-to-understand passages in the Bible, or maybe some of those controversial passages in the Bible, 
most of us sort of read it and then we eventually and pretty quickly just shrug and say, well, that's your interpretation or, or well, there are so many other interpretations. And we just sort of give up and then fall back on whatever is really underneath the surface of our hearts, which is simply our political ideologies or philosophies because, hey, the Bible's take on the matter is just a toss-up anyway, isn't it? And so it goes in the way in which we treat Scripture lightly and even superficially. And yet our deepest commitments tend to be things that the Apostle calls human wisdom and the spirit of the world. But what if by diligent study and fervent prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit, we actually could discover God's truth in Scripture? What if that's possible? With, with study and humility and prayer, fervent prayer, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit to instruct us, what if that's possible? Not perfectly, not in, infallibly, but truly. I mean, friends, when was the last time that you begged God in prayer to help you understand a hard passage in Scripture? Have you done that lately? Or do you just close the book and say, well, it can't mean that. And what if, as Paul says in the last line of the passage, we, what if we really can, by God's Spirit, have the mind of Christ himself on these issues? What if? And when we turn to Scripture, of course, the whole point here is that we need the Holy Spirit's help to understand it, not least because we're naturally resistant to it. We don't want to hear the truth about ourselves. We need help to overcome our resistance when we encounter things in the Bible that just might save us and just might be true, but that we don't naturally like. You might have seen this video online. It's been going around a little bit, but there's one of a toddler who finds what he's pretty sure is an apple. And so he asks, Mom, can I eat this apple? And she replies, no, it's an onion. It's an apple, he retorts, toddler style. No, it's an onion, she says. It's an apple. Finally, mom relents. Okay, if you insist, eat it. And the video then shows a close-up of this gloriously stubborn two- or three-year-old boy chomping away at an onion in silent defiance, right? And he's just staring right into the video, and he's breathing heavily, and eventually his eyes are, are dripping with tears. I mean, it's an onion. And at one point, he even gags a little bit, not surprisingly. I mean, he's adorable, but as his mom wrote as a caption to the video, better dead than admit the mistake. <laughs> and you got to admit, it's a nice picture of us too, isn't it? See, God's Spirit tells us through God's Word 
love your neighbor, and oh yeah, love your enemy too. And we take a bite out of that onion. Your happiness is not the most important thing. Your growth and glory in Christ is. Take a bite out of that onion. Remember the Sabbath and and rest. You're going to be okay. Take a bite out of that onion. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Theologian Don Carson has written helpful words here. He says, God has made us for himself but we have run from him. We do not want to know him if knowing him is on his terms. We're happy to have a God we can more or less manipulate. We do not want a God to whom we admit that we're rebels in heart and mind, that we do not deserve his favor, and that our only hope is in his pardoning and transforming grace, or more precisely, we cannot fathom such things unless we have the spirit of God brings us back to the main point. The good news, of course, is that we're given God's Spirit precisely so that we can taste the sweetness of the glory of the grace of God in Christ, the sweetness of his forgiveness, the sweetness of his love, the sweetness of the truth, even of his justice and the way that that holds out hope that God cares about evil and abuse and brokenness in your life and in others, and one day he's going to make it all right. That's good news, too. We are defiant onion eaters refusing to agree with God, and that's precisely why the Holy Spirit himself is such a gift of grace. This, too, is God rescuing us from himself, and God doesn't leave us just to figure him out or even figure ourselves out on our own. He pours his Holy Spirit out upon us. He even pours him into us, we're told, according to the word, such that God the Spirit lives in us even as in a temple. So will you ask for more of the Holy Spirit today? to overcome your resistance to God, to grant you understanding of the truth, to help you to see more of Jesus and all of his beauty and all of his love and all of his tough love for you as well. In Luke 11, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he tells them this, maybe some familiar words to you, Which of you fathers, mothers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So do you want the Holy Spirit who can open your eyes to the truth of the gospel, the truth of your need for Christ, the truth of his provision in the cross and resurrection? Do you want to see the realities around you according to the wisdom of God? Then you need more of the Holy Spirit. And if you need more of the Holy Spirit, 
the only thing that's standing between you and having more of him is that you ask. Will you ask your heavenly father for the spirit of God today? And will you do that with rock-solid confidence that he's eager to give him to you? Receive the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, give us more of your spirit. Open our eyes to see the truth of your word, of your gospel, of your grace. Overcome our resistance. Preach good news to our hearts. We need you. We can't do this for ourselves. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing about the greatness of our God, how great thou art.